Well, good morning. How are we doing today? Good, yeah, it's okay. We're not allowed to sing. We're allowed to talk a little bit, so that's okay. <laughs> well, the weather changed this week, and I, I'm going to start off something very controversial here. I, I don't mind the little bit of snow that's coming. I don't know if there's anybody who joins me in that, but if, I like fall. I guess I'm a true Canadian in that sense. I can, I can enjoy fall. So um, hopefully you had a nice Thanksgiving weekend, and we're all glad to see you here with us today. If you are new for the first time online, I do encourage you to type that word new into the comment box, or if you're visiting with us or checking us out for the first time here on site, uh, I would love the opportunity to speak with you following the service. It's it's hard to kind of meet new people in the midst of the COVID season, but there's a safe way we can do that. And so please feel free to come and uh, chat with us online or on site here following today's message. Well, today is the final sermon in the series we've been doing for the last six weeks called Stand. During the last six weeks, we have been following Daniel's life as a Babylonian exile, which spans well over 60 years, probably 70 years by the time we're finished. And we've seen over that time, from the very first week, how he was taken from his home and brought to a foreign land. How he was stripped of his culture and then tried to be re-enculturated. How he was brought into the service of a king, but still stood in his love for his God. And through it all, he was called to stand before powerful kings. He was used to reveal mysteries to them. He was used to rebuke them. He was used to call them to repentance, all things that could lead to a very real possibility of death for him. All the time having enemies plotting against him. And yet, as we've seen through these past five weeks, Daniel stood up, stood out, stood in faith, and he stood for what was right. And through it all, I hope you, you caught this throughout the whole series, through it all, he was an outstanding example of how to stand for the Lord, whatever life may bring for us. So I truly hope that you have been enjoying this series, but also hoping that it has challenged you, that it has encouraged you to press deeper into your own stand for Jesus Christ in whatever life may bring your way. We find ourselves today at the end of what's referred to sometimes as the courtroom narratives. That's the first six chapters in the book of Daniel. If you were to continue reading the book of Daniel from this point going forward, and I encourage you to do so at home on your own, from chapter 7 to the end, it changes a bit. We get into chapters where there's a lot of prophecy, apocalyptic language, and things like that that start to happen. But the first six chapters we've been walking through are referred to sometimes as the courtroom narratives. And if you notice, they've all taken place in a king's court. And we finish today with what is likely probably the most well-known story out of the book of Daniel, that being Daniel and the lion's den. Now, if you went to Sunday school as a child, there's a good chance that this is one of your favorite stories that you will recall from some of those lessons. If you're a fan of the VeggieTales series, this was the very first story they chose to make a show about. If you have a children's picture Bible at home, you might recall the story and the images that are attached to that story in that book. And all of these examples do a really good job of telling the story, at least in terms of the big points. Because I find that sometimes, however, when we have these, these children's level understanding of the story, we miss some of the finer details. They just kind of miss the mark. You know, for example... If you look at some of those images, we all know that, that, that Daniel is not a cucumber, as, as VeggieTales would have us see. But, but even in some of those other children's stories, they, they picture him as kind of a young, handsome man 
or, or they'll make him sort of a fit, you know, middle-aged guy with like kind of George Clooney salt and pepper hair. The reality is he's closer to 90 years old at this point. He probably has no hair at, at this particular stage in his life. And then the lions are sometimes pictured as being these stuffed animals that you can, you can cuddle and squeeze. But have you ever seen a lion in person? Maybe you've gone to the Calgary Zoo and you've gone to the cage and sometimes they spend a lot of time sleeping and, and lying around. Right? Thank you. Lying around. But if you get there at a, at a fortunate time when they're prowling, maybe even roaring, it will get your attention. If you are anywhere near that part of the zoo and one of those lions roars, you will stop what you are doing. It will get your attention and you will come see what is happening because it is terrifying. Now imagine a den full of these lions who have not been fed for days, if not weeks. These ferocious man-eaters all inside this stone cave, this den with that roar echoing through the opening. It would be terrifying. It would be absolutely terrifying. This life-threatening ordeal, this very real ordeal that Daniel faced would make the bravest, the strongest man quake in his boots. Now, none of us in our lives face the reality of being thrown into a lion's den unless you were foolish enough to jump the fence at the zoo, but that's something I can't help you with. But we all sometimes face adversity. We all can feel metaphorically like we are in the lion's den. In these situations where, where perhaps people are betraying you and you're not sure, who can I trust? In situations, as we know, of people of losing their jobs during the season and bills are adding up and finances are hard to, to balance and you know that the phone is ringing because bills are behind and you're not sure what to do. You feel like there's no way out. Literally every day this week, I talk to a family in our church or our community who is having to isolate because they came into contact with somebody who has COVID and now they have to quarantine and be tested. And I talk to them in these moments where they're just waiting. There's nothing they can do but wait until the results come through. And thank God that they've all come through negative thus far from what I've heard. We praise God for that. But there's that time of waiting where there's nothing you can do but sit in the adversity. And it's in these moments where a natural question starts to present itself. And the question is this, will you fall away in fear or will you stand strong in faith? And today we're going to have a look at Daniel one more time, one more example, and answer that question. How do you stand strong in the face of adversity? It's a question we're going to look at today, and I think Daniel helps us to answer. And as you open our Bibles to chapter 6 of Daniel, if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to do so. We are reminded right at the very beginning that, that Darius, the, the Persian king, is now on the throne. If you remember at the end of chapter 5, Babylonian kings were in power right up to this point. But then at the very end of chapter 5, the Medes and the Persians had joined together and they conquered Babylon. And now we find ourselves in a situation where Darius, the Persian king, is upon the throne, having conquered the kingdom of Babylon. But Daniel is still standing. This shining star of character and ability has been brought into the service of this new administration. And Darius is, is a man who is believed to have possessed incredibly strong leadership abilities. 
And so he decided to rule this very, very vast kingdom through the process of administration where he, he instituted 120 satraps, these, these people who had these positions that was kind of part tax collector, part judge, part commander of the army, commander of the forces. And, and they were put 120 of these guys across the kingdom that were there for the purpose of keeping the peace and, and keeping down rebellions, settling disputes, collecting money for, for the empire, and it was a rather powerful position, as you can imagine. It was like having the entire kingdom divided into 120 districts or 120 individual courts. And over top of that, to manage that, he put into place three administrators, kind of like a supreme court above these 120 courts. And so there were three supreme court judges, one of which was Daniel. And Daniel, we learn in chapter 3, had distinguished himself among all of the administrators and among all of the satraps by his exceptional qualities, that the king actually planned to make him leader over the whole kingdom. Now last week, if you're with us, and you remember that Daniel was known, he had a reputation as one who had the spirit of the living God within him. And his reputation preceded him for people who didn't even know him. And here we find Darius seeing something in him as well. Where in the past, Daniel was elevated to third in command. But here, Darius is saying, I want to make you second in command. There's just something special about you. I want to just pause for a second and say here that this just goes to show that I honestly believe that in this story, but in life, I've experienced as well with people that I've had the opportunity to, to, to minister alongside in church. And it's this, that, that age is just a number. You see, Daniel has lived in captivity for, for like 70 years right now. He's almost 90 years old. And throughout that entire time, he has only grown wiser, grown with more experience, with better character, with deeper faith, with stronger integrity. Why? Because there's no expiration date on things like that. And it's one of the reasons when I kind of cringe a little bit when I hear some of our seniors within the church say things like, I've done my time, and it's time to let the younger people do theirs. And on one hand, I say, yes, bring the younger people in. They need to be involved. They bring fresh perspective and energy and ideas. Yes, I support that. But at the same time, come alongside them. We need, we need different generations to mentor one another, to support one another, to learn from one another. You see, in the Bible, the only time we see a person retire from their service to God is when they die. And so that means if you still have breath and life in you, we need you. If you still have life and breath in you, God needs you. Because he has more to teach you and you have more to teach us. And so I want to encourage all of us to be involved in the ministry of our churches, regardless of what season of life we're in. There's a place and a purpose and a need for everybody to be involved into these intergenerational mentoring opportunities that exist. Now, that's hard at times to, to get into these different situations. And Daniel finds himself in one of those tough moments. Because these administrators and satraps are actually jealous of this old man. They're jealous of this guy they look at and they go, well, he's an outsider. He's, he's an exile. Why is he continuing to succeed? And so they make the decision they need to take him down. Now, don't be surprised in your own life if when God starts to raise you up, if others try to keep you down. Because they're thinking, how hard could this really be? He's been in politics for 70 years. 
The guy has got all sorts of dirt after 70 years. He's got all sorts of skeletons in his closet after 70 years in politics. How could he not? But then we see in verse 4 and 5 that at this, the, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct in government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy. He was neither corrupt nor was he negligent. And so finally they determined, we will only find a basis against Daniel if it has something to do with the law of his God. You know, there's this, this social phenomenon that exists, and you've probably maybe encountered this in different situations in your life. It's referred to as the tall poppy syndrome. I don't know if anybody's ever heard of the tall poppy syndrome before. Uh, you may not have heard that term, but I'm sure you've experienced this or heard stories of it in some fashion. It basically means this, is, is that poppies like to grow at the same height. But if one starts to, to grow a little taller, there are some countries in the world who refer to that as a tall poppy syndrome because somebody will come along and chop it off so it comes back down to the proper height. How dare that poppy try to grow above the other ones that exist? And we've probably seen this in, in your own life or maybe in the lives of situations of other people that you know and love. I've seen it as a person comes to faith for the first time, when, when Jesus comes to live within them and they are just on fire because the transformation that takes place in their lives. And they just want to share their life and their story and their faith with people all over the world until they run into that one person who's been a little grumpy a little too long and is like a fire extinguisher and just wants to put out that spark that exists in them. I run into people at times who, who have made decisions in the past, but as they continue to grow in their faith and their knowledge of Jesus Christ, they realize changes need to be made. Hard decisions and steps need to be taken. And so they start taking those steps. They start taking those decisions. Making those hard choices into people around them, it appears foolish. And they could even receive counsel to the other regard. See, when, when Nadine and I first started moving towards ministry, when we had to leave careers that we were doing very well in, and, and, and comforts and, and income and possessions and things that other people were envious and jealous of, and we said, no, we're going to leave it all. We're going to sell it all to go be pastors. People thought we were crazy. People in the church thought we were crazy, and they told us so. <laughs> they, they even told us so. And yet God's blessed us the whole way through. You know, if, if God starts to raise you up, if you feel God is raising you up, pay attention to that. Not, not to those who might try to keep tearing you down, as the advisors and the satraps did in Daniel's story. Because what they decided to do in his situation is they thought, we're going to take Daniel's greatest strength, and we're going to flip that into his most fatal weakness. And so they went to King Darius, and they told him, King, we, we, we all got together, all of us satraps, all of us administrators, all 123 of us, <clears throat> except Daniel, and we all got together, and, and we decided, you know what would be good for the kingdom? You know what would be good for you, King? Is that if you required everybody in the kingdom to pray to you for 30 days, and, you know, an edict like that, it's got to have teeth so that people abide by it. Speaking of teeth, if somebody doesn't abide by it, they should be cast into your lion's den as punishment. And that'll make sure everybody abides by your new edict. Now, at first, it might appear like this is flattery. They're just trying to flatter him, going, oh, king, you are worthy of being prayed to. But, uh, but there's actually probably more going on here. 
This is probably presented to this administrative king by his administrators as an administrative solution. Because remember, he had divided his entire kingdom into 120 districts. He had essentially decentralized control of the entire kingdom. It was hard for people to see him as having the ultimate final authority. Now, if they all had to pray to him, though, that repositions him as the ultimate authority in the kingdom. And, and praying to him may mean that he was setting himself up as a deity, which happened in these times and cultures. But it also may mean that he was setting himself up as the, as the mediator between man and God. If you want to have access to your gods, you need to come through me. The end result, he once again becomes known as the central focus of the entire kingdom. Now, Darius was a good leader. He was making good decisions up to this point, but a good leader could only make good decisions if he has good people bringing him good information, which he didn't have in this particular time, but he issues the edict. And he issues it in writing, and in that culture, if you issued it in writing, it could not be changed. It was binding. The king would not even lose face and position, but he could lose his life for going against a written edict. Now, it wouldn't take long for Daniel to learn of this new law that had come into effect. Because he, as an administrator, would be expected to not only abide by it, to enforce it as well. Now, the only thing worse than knowing a trap is set for you is being able to see it right out in the open and knowing that you're walking directly towards it, which is exactly the situation Daniel found himself in. So what would he do? What would you do in this particular situation? There's a few options, and, and maybe you've thought of some of these options for yourself already. Well, one option is you could just stop praying. It's only 30 days. You know, God and I have had a good run, good 70-year run of prayer in exile. What's a month? Right? We'll just take one month off. I'm sure God will understand if I just take this one month off. Well, to help you understand if God will understand that, try that with your spouse. See, they think if you want to take a one-month break from marriage. God may respond similarly. Another option is, well, I'll just, I'll just pray secretively. Right? I'll, I'll basically, I'll, I'll kind of fake it. I'll just pray silently. There's nothing wrong with praying silently, is there? I'll kind of go underground. When it comes time to pray, I'll keep my eyes open. I'll keep my hands at my sides. I, I, I won't move my lips or utter any words. I'll just stand there like a statue as I pray silently to myself. It's probably the most common option, actually, that people would, would lean towards. Or another option, the option Daniel chose. He could keep praying at the risk of death. He could remain faithful to the God who has always remained faithful to him. And so Daniel finds himself stuck between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man, and he cannot serve both. He needs to choose one. But in verse 10, we're told which one he chose. Because it says, now Daniel learned that the decree had been published, and he went home to his upstairs room where the window opens towards Jerusalem. This place where three times a day he got down on his knees and he prayed, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Daniel had a regular schedule. He had a regular date with God. Three of them, every day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He got down on his knees and he prayed to God. He thanked God. And as we look at verse 10, as, as adversity has revealed itself, as his accusers have made their plot known, as he finds himself in the thick of a decision now, we begin to see the answer to our question. How do you stand strong in the face of adversity? 
How did Daniel stand strong and not fall to fear? It's because Daniel knelt before the Lord that gave him the ability to stand in the face of adversity. Daniel knelt first so that he was strong enough to stand. There's a few things I want to unpack about this in terms of Daniel's faith and in terms of his prayer life to help us better understand what does it mean to be able to stand because we kneel. And the first thing is this. Daniel's prayer life was public, not just private. Now, we have to be careful on how we understand this one. Daniel didn't flaunt his faith. He didn't flaunt his prayer. He didn't go to the middle of the center court of town, arms raised in a loud voice, and start praying. But neither did he shy away from or hide the fact of his faith in his prayers. What did he do? He went to his house, to an upstairs room, a private setting. But with the windows open, making it public, He could be seen, but he was not asking to be seen in how he prayed and lived this out before the world. Now, what does that look like in our lives? There's all sorts of situations we can find opportunities to to apply this, but but the one that came to mind for me is, is, is when we see Christians, when we see believers in restaurants, and it comes time to decide, do we pray, don't we pray, do we pray, don't we pray? Now, assuming that we're going to pray in a restaurant, there's, there's kind of two categories that I think people fall into on this. There are the public prayers, and, and I know some of these. I won't name any names, even though I can see a few of them here. There are the, the public prayers who have loud voices, who have long prayers, and they are beautiful things. I find, however, they always wait until the waitress is about halfway to the table to take your order or fill your cup of water before they start praying. And they create this awkward situation as she walks up upon you, and and do I wait? Do I go? What do I do? (laughs) So we've got the very public ones. But then there's the private prayers. And and sometimes these are done in a way where, where a person works out a system where they've written down kind of their, their 10 standard meal prayers on a piece of paper, and they numbered them, 1 through 10, 1, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 10. And then when the meal comes, they, they accidentally, oop, drop their napkin on the floor, and as they bend down, they go, number 8, amen. And they go, God knows what number 8 means. <laughs> and that's a bit, I, I'm not sure that works either. Here's the point. I'm not trying to give you instructions on how to do this in public, but here's what I want you to know. Is that if your faith is private, it will not get you into trouble. If your faith and your prayers are, pub, are, are private, they will not offend anybody. But neither will they influence anybody. They won't offend, but neither will they influence. Number two, prayer was Daniel's first line of defense. When trouble and stress increased, he knew where to turn. He lived in this regular rhythm of prayer three times a day. It was not something that was commanded. The only reference to this we find is in the Psalms where it talks about this being a potential practice that some people follow, but it's not a commandment. It was a suggestion. It was something that Daniel practiced, however. And he knelt before God three times a day, every day, no matter what was going on, And that gave him the ability to stand before man in adversity. You see, he was used to talking to God about his life, sharing his thoughts, his feelings, his fears, his happiness, his sorrows. He was used to sharing these things, thanking God for the good times. So when adversity comes, when fear comes, when grief starts to come, it would be natural for him to think, I need to seek God. 
It would be the natural response that would exist in his life. And sure enough, if you look at verse 11, when his enemies find him, what do they find him doing? They find him praying, asking God for help. That's where he turned to, his first line of defense. And then thirdly, prayer is more about preparing you than it is about changing God's mind. We don't know exactly how Daniel would define that phrase, God's help, when it says he was praying for God's help. We don't know exactly how he would define it, but quite often the default for how a lot of people define asking for God's help is, is God, get me out of here. God, can, can you just somehow make people forget that whole thing that I did? Can I just kind of take a mulligan on that one and we all just move on? Or, or some people may pray something along the lines of, you know, God, I, I saw this movie the other day, this Superman movie, and this tragedy happened. And then Superman, he just flew really fast and the world turned backwards and time turned backwards, the event turned backwards, and he got to do it all over again. I, I read in the Bible, you stop the sun. Can we, we kind of, let's do that. Let's just do it all over so I don't have to face it. I don't have to face the results of the tragedy. Obviously, I'm exaggerating how this goes sometimes, but, but this does play itself out in our prayer life when that's the focus of how we define God's help. We're basically asking, God, could you bend your will to our will? And then when he doesn't, some people end up questioning their faith. They start questioning, is God real? Does prayer work? Yeah, he is. And yeah, prayer does work. It's just... He's God, we're not. He's not going to just bend his will to ours because we got ourselves in trouble. But let me ask you this. Is it possible? Is it possible to define God's help? Is it possible to understand God's answers to our prayers when he gives us strength to endure? When he gives us peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of the situation? When he allows us to have the ability to press on to the end, conclusion happens. Is it possible he answers our prayers when he gives us the ability to stand strong and see how the story ends? Because we see this in another example in the New Testament. We see this in the example of Jesus Christ. And we know that those of us who are familiar with, with the journey that Jesus was on, that he found himself at the end of his ministry in a garden, praying, asking God for help. And what was that prayer? The prayer of Jesus himself was, Lord, take this cup, but not my will, but yours. Basically, to paraphrase that, Lord, move. Do something. If there's another way, God, move. It's not wrong to ask. It's not wrong to ask God to move in those ways to rescue us from the moment as long as we have the second part of the prayer in mind as well. Move God or move me. Change me. Prepare me. Equip me. Sustain me. Strengthen me. That your will may be done through me. Move God or move me. See, prayer quite often is more about preparing us than it is about changing God's mind. See, there are no guarantees, there are are no promises that nothing bad will ever happen to us. Even if you do everything right, you won't find those promises. Even when we do everything right, 
we won't find that promise. But we can find ourselves in a spot where if we do what is right, we can trust God with the results, which is where Daniel finds himself. Because Daniel's prayer life sustained him because he knelt before God, he could stand in the face of adversity. And Daniel found himself in trouble. His prayer life got him in trouble. Because his enemies go to King Darius. And they tell him, they, they, they tell him what he had done. Darius is deeply distressed by this. Because he likes Daniel a lot. Don't forget, he, he thought he was a good employee. He saw something special within him. He was going to promote him to second in the kingdom. And in verse 14 of Daniel 6, it tells us that King was determined to rescue Daniel. And he made every effort he could possibly make until sundown to save him. But when the sun goes down and the day ends and no other options present themselves, he can do nothing but deliver the sentence. And so he drops Daniel. Remember, he's 90. He probably carefully lowered him into the Daniel, into the lion's den. And he's in the pit with the lions. There's nothing more Darius could do. And over the sound of these roaring lions, he encourages Daniel. He shouts down to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Daniel's life of unwavering faith in God has just influenced another king. A king who then has to roll the stone over the entrance, seals it with his signet ring and that of his nobles, so that nobody could tamper with it, and then goes home. And the actors in this story have very different experiences this night as they go home to their own private places. The, the accusers, we don't know what happened to them, but I think it's pretty safe to assume that they were celebrating because their plan had worked. Daniel's in the lion's den, and there is now a job opening. One of us is getting promoted. So they celebrate themselves. King Darius, we're told, he goes home, and he is dominated, just filled with anxiety because he likes Daniel. Some would suggest he even loved Daniel, went beyond just thinking he was a good employee, that he was deeply fond of Daniel. And he can't eat, he refuses all entertainment, and he tosses and turns and cannot sleep at night at all. He is just waiting for the night to be over because he is dreading the morning. And then there's Daniel. We're not told exactly what he did. But I think it's pretty safe to assume that, number one, he was riddled with fear. Even people of faith does not mean that fear does not exist with them. It just simply means they're not controlled by it. So I'm sure he was riddled with fear as he was lowered into that lion's den, just waiting for what seemed like the inevitable. But I believe he also continued to pray. Why? Because it was his first line of defense. It was what he went to in his seasons, of all seasons. And it was what had prepared him for whatever may come in his life. And I believe part of the preparation that happened within Daniel that night was similar to what Paul shares with us in Philippians 1.21, where Paul himself was in prison. Where Paul himself didn't know if he would live or he would die. But what was his response? For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Basically meaning, if my Lord saves me, I win. Because I can continue to live for him. But if my God doesn't save me, I still win because I get to be with him forever. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well... As the sun breaks through the darkness, Darius runs to the den and he has the stone rolled back and, and, and the darkness and the silence is broken. As he calls to Daniel through that opening in the top of the day, as he calls to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, did the God whom you serve rescue you? 
And I imagine there'd be a ray of light that'd be just coming through that hole, piercing the darkness, and stepping into the light stands Daniel, who says, oh my king, my God, he sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so they could not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight. I have not, <clears throat> and I have not wronged you, your majesty, either. The king was so overjoyed that he ordered Daniel to be lifted out of the lion's den. And it was found that he would not have even a scratch upon him. For he had trusted in his God. When the Old Testament speaks about God sending an angel, sometimes it uses the phrase, an angel of the Lord. And some people believe that the phrase, angel of the Lord, actually refers to Jesus, who existed from the time of creation right through to the end. And, and some believe that that's his role he plays in the Old Testament at times. Some, some commentators will suggest that's a definition, that it's possible. It's possible that Jesus spent the night with Daniel. And no harm came to him. One of them even said that when Jesus is sometimes referred to as the angel of the Lord, he's also referred to as the lion of Judah. And, and one commentator I read said, just maybe the lion of Judah showed up in the lion's den, sat down with Daniel, and the other lions looked around and said, we're not messing with that lion. They just left him alone. And there's a promise in this for us. And the promise is not that our faithfulness will prevent adversity. It's not a promise or a guarantee that our, our, our faithfulness or doing the right thing will prevent us from having to endure ordeals. But it's the same promise that existed from, from the time we read about it in the book of Deuteronomy 31, where God said to his people then, Be strong, be courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will not leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. Daniel survived this ordeal because his Lord was with him. He did not leave him nor forsake him. And Daniel stood strong and stood courageous in the face of adversity. But here's the part you don't find in the VeggieTales movie. The part you don't find in, in, in the children's story that you have in Sunday school class sometimes. Well, Daniel was found innocent, his accusers were not. And so Darius orders that they and their wives, and their children all be thrown into the lion's den. And just to prove that these lions weren't vegans, and that they're actually hungry, the Bible tells us that before they hit the floor, they were killed. Now, Daniel knelt before the Lord. That means he knew the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He had unwavering faith in the Lord. And that is what gave him the ability to stand strong in the face of adversity. And this example so impressed the king of the most powerful nation in the world yet again that Darius issues a new decree. A decree declaring to everyone in his entire kingdom that they should fear the God of Daniel. Just like the Babylonian kings before him. So impressed and influenced and impacted by the example and the appearance in the reality of God in his life, they declared the awesome power of God. They declared God's protection over his people. And as this chapter ends in Daniel chapter 6, we're reminded that Daniel spent the most of his life in exile. But even serving into a fourth administration, because in chapter 6, verse 28, it says, So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus 
the Persian. For 70 years plus, Daniel showed us what it looks like to stand for the Lord. For the last six weeks, as we walk through the first six chapters of Daniel, I've been trying to show us and demonstrate through Daniel what it looks like to stand for the Lord. What it looks like to stand out as an outstanding example of faith. For example, Daniel, when he was only 17 years old, was stripped of all that he knew and had. What it looks like to stand amazed at the fact that God is in control of all things, that he knows the future and fulfills his promises. And what it looks like to stand in faith as Daniel and his friends stand firm even when things start to heat up. To stand up for what is right. Calling others to humble themselves and to, to stop looking down upon others, but to start looking up towards God. To stand against the profane in a manner that honors your God-given name. And then today, to stand strong in the face of adversity. How? By first kneeling before God. Now, this verse also signals to us something else. It signals to us that God answers prayer. Because, see, this is also the beginning of God's answered prayers to the nation of Israel. Recall in week one, I talked about how Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebi, was God's chosen instrument of judgment against Judah as he brought the people in exile from Jerusalem into Babylon. We also read that King Cyrus was God's chosen of return to Jerusalem. Read about this in the book of Ezra a contemporary of Daniel, uh, Ezra, who during his time in the book of Ezra, this king, Cyrus, also issued a decree. And it says this in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, again, echoing the words of the previous administration who had seen Daniel saved from the lion's den, has given me all kingdoms of earth, there's a statement of humility that was missing in previous kings there. And he has appointed me to build him a temple in Jerusalem in Judea. Any and all the people may go to Jerusalem in Judea to build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. We see the story come full circle. As Daniel, calls, as Daniel is called out of Jerusalem in exile, stands faithfully for 70 plus years in exile, and from the first administration to the last, is a faithful witness of one who stood for God until that administration releases the people to return home. You see, when God raises you up, do not be surprised that people try to tear you down. But in the midst of that, stand when adversity comes. And how do you stand? You stand by kneeling before God who gives you the strength to stand, trusting that God is always with you. He will give you the strength. He will give you the courage. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And when you stand strong in God, you can trust that he will finish the story. All of us face adversity. And if you are trying to stand on your own, if you are trying to stand strong on your own, I, I want to encourage you to say, this is the time I need to acknowledge that it's time to kneel before God. If you've never made that profession of faith before, to submit yourself, to humble yourself under the reality of who God is, I encourage you to do so. You see, God loves you and sent his son, Jesus Christ, to pay the price for your sins. These sins, these things that we have done that violate God's law, his character, his will, and, and, and honor ourselves more than him. But they create this divide between us and God. But just as God said, into the darkness, into the fear, into the den with Daniel. So Jesus came and stood in a pit. 
when he gave his life upon the cross and died himself and was laid into a tomb. But then he too rose victorious as he emerged from that den. But he emerged with a gift of life for all who would submit and, and confess their sins to him. If you feel like you're in a lion's den and you're all alone, you need God to come stand there with you. That is the path to do so. To thank Jesus for paying the price and for standing with you in the midst of that and to see you through it. You can simply do that. If you're watching online right now, you can click that box that's there. You can click on the prayer box. Somebody's there to pray with you and talk with you. If you're here on site, please join us after the service at the front here where there'll be those of us here who can pray with you in a safe way and talk about these things more. And for those of you who do know the Lord, I want to ask you this question. If you were in Daniel's situation, would your prayer life get you in trouble? Or would you be perfectly fine and safe from that edict? If your prayer life wouldn't get you in trouble, I want to suggest to you that it's too private. That doesn't mean go on the public street and, and do the opposite pendulum swing from too private to too public. I, I want to encourage you to consider what does it look like to have a regular meeting with God? To live that life of prayer where, where, where you just share your life, your thoughts, your fears, your dreams, your hopes, your celebrations, your successes, your victories with him. Give him thanks in those times. Do that over a consistent period of time and you will find that when adversity comes, the first thought that pops into your mind is, I need to seek God. And it won't be like a first date because you already know each other. You'll have that relationship established in your lives. I want to ask you to commit to grow in that fashion, to grow in your prayer life and your relationship with the Lord that you'll be able to stand in the face of adversity. We want to help you with that as a church too. And so if we can, again, come talk to us. Check out one of our groups. Let us know how we can help you. We're here to serve you in that. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, whom you sent to be the one who could stand in the gap between us and the Father that we're separated by because of our sins. Lord, for those who do not personally know you made that confession of faith, that God, I pray that right now in these moments that the spirit that is among us, the spirit that is speaking to us, would prompt those people to say, yes, that is what I've been searching for. That they would respond in this moment, Lord. Because we know that you bring new life to all people who choose to experience you, who choose to receive you. We pray for that new life, Lord. For the, I also pray for those of us who are here who know that we, if we're honest with our own thoughts, that God, we don't visit you enough. We don't spend enough time with you. And when adversity comes, we look to ourselves and not to you. God, that doesn't preclude the responsibility that we have in each of our situations, the responsibility we have to do our part. But God, may we have faith in you, have a relationship with you, have a, a regular time with you where we understand what your part and we submit ourselves and humble ourselves to follow you faithfully through all seasons of life. Those times when we give you thanks, but also those times when we cry out in fear. That we would meet with you and we could say, move, Lord. We believe you can. We believe you do. But Lord, also move in me. Change me. Use me. That I might be a faithful witness to you in the world around. And help us as a church, Lord, to understand what our role is in each brother's lives help one another grow in our understanding, in our accountability, in our depth of relationship with one another, and ultimately with you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.